what a glorious word, especially as we consider this morning, Matthew 24. We're thinking about the future. We're looking with Jesus. We're looking at what the future has in store for this earth, for really the end of the age. And what a confidence it is to know that it's held in the hands of the one who is the ancient of days, the one who's in control of all history, the one who's in control of our own lives, who has our days numbered, and he is in control of it all. What a confidence that is. For as we read in this text, as we anticipate the future, it's going to get really hard. And even if, and we'll talk about some of the details a little bit, some this week, and of course, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks, we might not even go through all of this ourselves, but we will endure temptation, we will endure tribulation and affliction and persecution of various sorts, and it's a call to endure. It's a call to trust the one who's in control of all these things. And so we might not know what the future holds, but he does, and he will see us through to the very end. But we need his help. We can't do that on our own. We need his help even as we turn to his word to study it. So let's do that once more. Let's pray together. Let's ask for his help as we turn to the scriptures. Father in heaven, you are holy and you are perfect. We have no right to come to you, but we have Christ. And Christ, you call us and you say even with full confidence we can come. Even as we are weary and heavy laden, we can come to you. Even as we are aware of our sin, we're aware of your sacrifice. And so, again, we can come even with boldness, not on our own holiness, but on the holiness of your sacrifice, the holiness and righteousness of Christ given to us. This is a great glory, and this is why we pray and worship. We thank you for your word that teaches us these things, that teaches us, too, about the future and the glory that awaits those who trust in you. Also, the glory of strength that you will give to your people to persevere to the very end. We need it. We need it all the way to the end. We pray that even your study this morning would serve those ends, give us the strength, that we would hold fast to your promises and your word, your word which is perfect and revives the soul. Revive our souls this morning with the truths of Christ. Your testimony, O Lord, that's pure, makes us wise, and we pray that we would receive wisdom, that we might walk in these days. And your precepts are right, rejoicing the heart, causing our heart joy to rise up because of the glorious salvation that awaits, and we need you. So, O oh God, let the words of my mouth this morning and the meditation of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, our God, our rock, our Redeemer. It's because of Christ and his sacrifice alone we pray. Amen. So this morning, then, we are beginning our study on what is called Jesus' Olivet Discourse. It's called that because he's teaching from, namely, the Mount of Olives, this large hill that overlooks the city of Jerusalem and overlooks the Temple Mount, which has been a a key point as Jesus has rode in on the last week here of his ministry on earth. And as he's been teaching now, the disciples, they have Jesus, they have an opportunity to ask him private questions to him, and they ask him about the future. How is this all going to work out? How are you going to bring about the end? What's it going to be like when you return? And so what follows here in Matthew 24 and then on into chapter 25, this proves to be Jesus' most extended teaching about the future, about the times of the end. And so this peek at the future from Jesus is going to dominate our study, Lord willing, here over the next couple of weeks. So that means we're going to dip our toes into that area of theology called eschatology. That is the study of the last things, the study of end times. Now, some of you here, we're going to talk about end time stuff, and some of you are pumped. I can see it on your face. You are psyched. You've been waiting for this. People have been emailing me, asking me questions. I can't wait till you get to Matthew 24. Sometimes I think they mean it as a challenge. Like, I can't wait till you get there. 
And yet you're just so excited to hear about what the end's going to be like. However, some of you maybe heard we're going to talk about end time stuff, and you're a little worried, actually. You're maybe disappointed. You're thinking things like, won't this prove divisive? We know so many people disagree about this. Won't it do more harm than good? Can anyone really understand this stuff? It's so confusing. Is it really worth studying? Wouldn't we be better off we just skip this or go somewhere else in Scripture that we more can all agree on, and we'll get encouragement there? But note this. Jesus taught about the end, and he taught about it clearly. And it's dedicated here. Two very chapters of Matthew's gospel are all about the times of the end and what it will be like. Furthermore, of the, what we call the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is one teaching each of those gospels record in their gospel that no other teaching they record, and it's this one, the Olivet Discourse. All three of those gospels have some take or some recording of this teaching of Jesus. It was very important to Jesus. He elaborated on it for chapters. It's very important to the church. Jesus had it preserved in the scriptures in multiple places in multiple ways, again, to teach us what the future holds. He knew this was important for your spiritual life. And not just to satisfy your curiosities or to answer all of your theological questions, because to be clear, once we get through, even Lord willing, the next three weeks, I don't think I'm going to answer all of your questions, okay? I still have some myself. Nevertheless, even though we might have questions, Jesus wants his church to hear this message. He knows it's vital to the sustenance, the sustaining of our faith to the very end, that we would know the future, that we would know what the future awaits, we would know what's going to happen, and that we would know what it takes to get there, to get to the end. And really, that's the word that comes to us this morning. He's telling us about the future, that our faith would endure to the very end. What we find here in this text, we're going to find, in the, looking at just the first 14 verses, we're going to find four perspectives. You might call it four mindsets, four attitudes as we think about the future that will sustain our faith to the very end until Christ comes back, or at very least, until we meet him face to face. Adopt these four perspectives about the end, these attitudes about how we approach the future that would sustain your faith till the end, till Christ comes back, or until you see him face to face. And the first attitude or perspective is this, is that you wouldn't lose focus. These are four perspectives on how we persevere, that we make it to the very end. And the first one is this, you can't lose focus. You must have your focus set on Christ and his word, if your faith will last. Because understand, our faith is going to be challenged in this life, one way or the other. It's going to be challenged through trial, through affliction. It's going to be challenged through difficulty. Most of us, of course, it'll be challenged by death and those realities. And that means we have to keep our focus through it all if our faith would endure. And that's not easy to do. It's so easy to be distracted. It's so easy to try and assure ourselves or find our faith going to those things we can handle, that we can touch, that we can find easy assurance in. Because we've been called here to trust a God and His Word, an invisible God and a Word that has yet to all take place. It's challenging. Oh, how easy it is to try and find security in something you can see, that you can touch, you can handle and say, that's secure, that's real, I know that's right, I can trust it. It's hard to just go by an invisible word. And for the Jews of the first century, the thing they looked to was the temple. The magnificence of God's temple in Jerusalem was this abiding confidence. This gave them a comfort and assurance to all the Jews as they looked. They saw this incredible building and they thought, God is with us. I know God is for us. I can see it there in this building. 
In the first place, this version of the temple, this was called Herod's temple. This was known to be the most beautiful building in all the Roman world. One Bible student remarked how the temple's walls were made of huge stones, some up to 40 feet long, and the top was adorned by pure white marble with gold plates in the facade so numerous that people were almost blinded when the sun shone upon it. I mean, it was a glorious sight. It was impressive. Anyone that could look and see the temple, it captured the wonder of all who saw it. And so you can certainly understand this proved to be then the pride of all the Jews. This building, this temple... Every year they would make their pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. And I'm sure thoughts would rise in their mind. This is our temple. This is our sign. This is our proof. God is with us. Something sure and secure is going on here in this immovable, unshakable, massive, breathtakingly adorned structure. We know God is with us. His glory is here. If it's anywhere on earth, it's with us now. Only what has been going on over this last few days of the Passion Week as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. What's he been talking about? Has he been talking about how great the temple is? Has he been talking about how great their worship is? No, he's been bringing judgment, hasn't he? Condemnation. Condemnation of the people of Israel, of all of their so-called worship. Condemnation to the hypocritical leaders. We saw that last week. And even condemning the temple. And that's where we ended last week. If you just bump your eyes up to, say, look at verse 38 of chapter 23, Jesus promised even the temple's total destruction. He said their house, which would include the temple, but their whole way of life and worship was to become a wasteland because they wouldn't repent. It says there in verse 38 of chapter 23, see your houses left or being left to you desolate, a wasteland, a desert, destroyed. Jesus looks at all of the worship going on in Jerusalem and he says, it's going to be ended going to be upended, turn upside down. Judgment's coming. We're done with this place. And yet, those very astute apostles, right, the followers of Jesus, they apparently were missing what Jesus was laying down. They couldn't pick it up. They missed the fact. They just couldn't hear or understand, what do you mean the temple's going to be destroyed? Their focus was so beholden to this magnificent building, they couldn't understand, what do you mean you're going to destroy it? Their focus was still settled in the temple. And that's evident as we turn now to chapter 24. And we see how infatuated and taken they are with this building. Look at verse 1 of chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So Jesus is leaving. (laughs) He's leaving the temple. This seems to be a sign of his even turning his back on the temple as he's condemned their leaders And yet, the disciples are going around like, hey, wait a minute, let's show you around the place. They're like excited tour guides, going to take Jesus around as if he's never been there. And again, this shows their pride, their affinity for this, you know, badge of honor of the temple. And maybe in particular, their interest was piqued because they might have assumed that this was going to become their new kingdom headquarters. You think of that? And Jesus had just gone and condemned all of the Jewish leaders, the, the, the hypocritical leaders. You know, it seems like Jesus is coming to drain the swamp in Jerusalem, right? And so all of these new officers and Christian leaders are going to be taking up their new positions. They're going to get their new office in this place, in the temple. And so this is their new office and position here represented at the temple. Only to all this, Jesus doesn't just burst their bubble, he obliterates it. Look at verse 2. And he answered them, You see all these, do you not? 
Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Whoa. This glorious structure, the beautiful building that they cherish, they take such pride in. This is the the very proof and seal that the God of Israel is with them. This temple, Jesus says, is going to be entirely destroyed, eliminated, gone. Not one stone of it will be left upon another. As if to say, hey, God and I, we're done with this place. We're getting rid of it. Which God did. In AD 70, Titus, the Roman general, brought it down brick by brick. Wiping out the entirety of the temple building proper. So you can go to Israel today, and of course there's the wailing, western wailing wall, and there's stones there. That represents the stones of the foundation or the platform that the actual temple sat upon. But the actual building of the temple is totally gone. In the same way that the Dome of the Rock, that's the building that's on the platform now, it's still there, but it's upheld by this platform. Only the platform stones are still there. The actual stones of the original temple building, they are gone. You can't find one anywhere. It was totally destroyed just as Jesus predicted. It was wiped out, totally razed. And so then, Jesus' response to the disciples' admiration for the temple lands as if to say, guys, you are focused on the wrong thing. The temple's going bye-bye. It's not going to be around anymore. As beautiful as it appears, as sure as it stands, as immovable as it seems, God's done with this place. The temple's going to be destroyed, and that quite soon. There's no lasting hope, security, assurance that rests there. And so he's calling to say, our faith must be settled on Christ, on God, and on the promises of his word. Not on buildings, not on structures, not on institutions, nor in your personal life, not on bank accounts, not on retirement accounts, not on your blood sugar levels, not on your governments, not on your institutions. There's no security in these things. And it can be very tough, but what this is, this is walking by faith, isn't it? You're not walking by sight anymore. And that's where the disciples fail here. And so many of us go to find security in something they can touch, they can handle, they can hold. Because the invisible God is hard to see, isn't he? But as soon as you put your security in something like this, something that can be destroyed, something that can be burned down, something that can change, something that can be exposed... Something that in all of those other things, it's something that will pass away. As soon as you put your trust there, that means your trust is going to fall. Whatever your trust, whatever your security, whatever your focus is upon, that this is what satisfies me, this is what makes me sure, this is what makes me happy, I have this and I'm good to go. If that's anything but God and His Word, you can be sure it's going to change. Because it's of this world. Things of this world change. That's almost what they are by definition. They are temporary things, and they will fade away one day or another, even though it might seem in our life it could never happen. Your faith will rise and fall if you place your hope in something like this that will fade. Whatever that thing is, it will fail you unless it is the unsinkable Word of God. So the first way we get to the end, the first way we persevere all the way to the end, we can't lose our focus on Christ, His Word, and what it says. Second, Don't be deceived. If you're going to make it to the end and not get steered off course, you cannot be deceived. You must hold true to the truth. Overall, maybe at least on this first part, very much, this serves as the pervasive word of Jesus' entire teaching here. 
Don't be duped. Don't be spiritually gullible. Don't be deceived. Test it all and hold fast to what is true by my word. Because as Jesus announces now the temple's coming destruction, quickly he needs to chime in lest the disciples get the wrong idea. Because, see, the disciples, they have this working assumption that the temple is so crucial to God's plan on earth, to what God's doing, such that if the temple goes away, (laughs) that must be the end of the world then. If the temple's going down, then it's all going down. The end of the world must be upon us. And so now, as they've left the temple and they go up to the Mount of Olives, it's only Jesus and his disciples. They have Jesus alone. They got some questions starting to wonder, well, how's this all this going to happen? And they got a couple questions for him. And it starts there in verse 3. It says, And he sat on the Mount of Olives. Again, hence, this is called the Olivet Discourse. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So you see here the disciples started off hearing about this, and they have two questions for Jesus. They have a question about when. When will these things be? When's this going to happen? When are you going to come back? When is the, the end of the world going to be established on earth, so to speak? When will this happen? That's their first question. Probably everybody's question. Second, they ask, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? What will be the sign, the indicators, the pointers, the things that we can see happening in history that indicate to us, oh, this is the last days? When will these things be, and what will be the sign of them happening? And Jesus is going to answer their questions, and he does it in reverse order. That is, he doesn't get to the when these things will all take place until we get to the very end of the chapter, actually looking down, you can see it there in verse 36, he starts to deal with the when. But that means before this, in verses 4 to 35, Jesus lays out the signs, the great event that point to and indicate the end is near, that these are the very last days. And to clarify, we'll go into this in the next couple of weeks, but to clarify then, what Jesus talks about in verses 4 to 35 are what are later described as the great tribulation. That is, these are the last seven years, also gone into detail in the book of Revelation, the last seven years before Christ's return, where Jesus, is, God, is pouring out his wrath on earth. He said the last seven years as God's judging the earth before Jesus comes and touches down to reign and rule for a thousand years on this earth. And so he's giving the details and the instructions about what's going to happen in those last seven years. And if our eschatology is right, that is, if our understanding of all the events and so forth, go read our doctrinal statement. We'll talk more about it in the next coming weeks. But if our eschatology is right, We're not even going to be here. We're going to be snatched away and raptured out before any of this takes place. So why have it recorded in Scripture? Why should we read these things? Why should we study this? If this doesn't directly apply to us, if we're not going to live through this season of the Great Tribulation, then why study it now? Let's just skip ahead. Well, understand, it's worth noting. The disciples that asked Jesus these questions, too, They didn't live through this great tribulation described here in verses 4 to 14 and following. Uh, Jesus taught this about what the end's going to be like, how you should live in the end, how you should view the end of the age, but none of those disciples saw it. Jesus taught this, of course, 2,000 years ago, and we have yet to come to those last days. And we'll see, again, we have no way of really knowing, but we don't know if we're going to be that last generation. 
And again, if our eschatology is right, we're going to get snatched out of here before it even gets really bad, like what we see described here. But nevertheless, just like those first disciples, and just like those first churches, they needed to hear these teachings. In the same way we do, we don't know if we're a part of that last generation or not. My point in bringing that all up is, if it applied to them 2,000 years ago, it certainly applies to us, too, in this day. And in what way or why? Because Jesus, in view of the worst tribulations upon the earth, the worst afflictions of judgment upon the earth, he's giving instructions, well, how do you endure such things? How will your faith hold fast if you find yourself walking through such things? Now, we might not walk through persecutions of this very sort to this very degree, but you're going to walk through affliction in this life. Your faith is going to be challenged by all kinds of difficulty, won't it? And we've, many of you are walking through it now. We will walk through tribulation. We will encounter difficulties. We will encounter trials. We will encounter afflictions. Again, maybe not to the degree, say, of the universal nature we see here is going on in the last seven years. But we will endure trials as believers in this world. How will we endure? That's what he's telling us. These are the kind of instructions he's giving us. Not to lose focus, not to be deceived. We will weather in pockets and seasons, and we've done so as the church for centuries of affliction. And now we're being strengthened by Jesus to get ready, even if it was for the worst of it, that our faith would hold fast to the very end. And the first instruction he gives us, the first principle he gives us and all Christians to endure the end, number one, don't be off track. Don't get deceived. You got to hold fast to the truth. Be discerning. Verse four. So they ask these questions. When's this going to happen? And what's it going to look like when the end's coming? Here's Jesus' answer. He answered them and said in verse 4, See that no one leads you astray. Don't be deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. you got to be careful. you got to watch out. Why? Because there's going to be many, many, many people coming saying, I am Jesus, and I'm here, and I'm back. And Jesus saying, don't believe them. They might claim Jesus' name, claim to represent him, claim to teach for him, etc. Don't believe them. It really does boggle my mind that despite this verse and how Jesus so clearly exhorts us, that false messiahs, false Jesus, gains so much traction. Recently hearing about a lady who claims to be a medium that talks to Jesus and talks to you. Or whether it's the kind of recent history, Yahweh Ben Yahweh, the black nationalist, or whether it's David Koresh in Waco, Texas. These people claiming to be Jesus on earth. Or lately, I read about this one. An Australian named Alan John Miller, he claims to be Jesus reincarnated. Wrong. He's a liar and a deceiver. And he's leading anyone astray who listens to him. Don't be duped. Don't be so gullible. There's one Jesus. He's in heaven. And he's reigning at the Father's right hand. And he's going to explain later in this chapter. Lord willing, get it to it next couple weeks here. When Jesus does come back, everybody's going to know it. It's not going to be a secret. It's going to be a lightning shot like across the sky. It's going to be evident to all. Nobody can deny the king when he's going to come in his glory. In other words, he's going to come in the clouds in glory like nothing what these imposters claim as they say, oh, I'm Jesus. And the wider implication for any of us is this. Be careful to entrust such faith to any man, to any teacher. And especially don't do it if they claim to say, I'm Jesus. Because what's going to happen? If you entrust too much faith to any man in his particular teachings that aren't based on Scripture, based on his opinion or his supposed insight into end-time prophecies, happens like this and that and so forth, 
What happens to your faith when their predictions don't come true? It gets rattled. Don't be led astray. Stick with the truth. Don't be deceived. Stick with his word. Third, don't be alarmed. Don't lose focus. Don't be deceived, but don't be alarmed either. Deceptions is this great risk as we consider what's going to happen at the end, but so is alarmism, being startled by every trouble of this world. Because Jesus urges us, even in the midst of the troubles of this life, you don't need to be startled, afraid. Why? Because God's still in control. It's all playing out according to his plan. So, after warning about these false Christs that will try and lead many astray, Jesus notes, as we near the end, especially during those seven last years, you're going to hear about a lot of wars, wars, and more wars. The nations of the earth will be going after one another. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, Jesus says. The time just before the end, during those last seven years, are going to be characterized by frequent wars, not peace. And it's easy to be alarmed by that. Even if you live far away from where the action is. I mean, the world wars prove to us how deadly and dangerous a far-off war can actually be. I mean, World War II calls to mind as we then... As all the battles took place an ocean away, yet we lost hundreds of thousands of Americans. Or consider World War I. It's astonishing. There was one Austrian archduke who was assassinated by one Slav nationalist, or a couple. And that one assassination, the dominoes of treaties and alliances fell into place. That meant trenches were being dug, Europe was about to become a wasteland, and 40 million people on earth were going to die. That's just the way our world works now. We're so international. We're so mutually dependent. If war breaks out in one place, it can easily break out all over. And you play that out then, and then you start to hear reports like, oh, Russia's thinking about going to Ukraine. What's that going to mean? Is there going to be a retaliation? Is there going to be a response? What's China going to do in response to that? How's the U.S. going to look? Or what are they going to do? Is there going to be attack? Is there going to be a draft? Is there going to be a war? What? Verse 6. To all that, Jesus says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end, that is the very end, when Christ comes back, is not yet. Don't be alarmed. Don't be startled. Don't be unsettled by this. Don't be troubled. And why not? I mean, war means trouble, right? Pain, death, loss. Yes, he doesn't deny that. But notice Jesus' logic here. See, you're not alarmed for, here's the reason, this must take place. In other words, when you hear about these wars and rumors of wars, this must happen, Jesus says. Well, says who? Who says it must happen? God does. Who's in control of all of it? It's all playing out just perfectly according to his plan. And that's why we have hope to endure. We can trust him, even when we can't make out how this is going to work. So you see then, as it is, whatever a nation does, whatever border it crosses, whatever army it raises up, whatever country it invades, none of this goes beyond the purpose and plan of God. It must happen. And even as it does, these wars do not mark or indicate the very end. But the end is not yet, he says, even in the face of all these wars. That's not how the end's going to come about, even if you add some natural disasters to it. Look at verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. These will characterize the seven years of the worst time on earth here of the tribulation. 
But even then, the end is not going to immediately come right then. But frankly, these are all things, too, that we see year in and year out here. Kingdoms rising against kingdoms. We see famines and earthquakes all over the place. Some of you have maybe lived through this up close. But just the sight or experience of one of these things does not indicate we're at the very end, at the very moment Christ is about to return. And indeed, there might be all sorts of trouble and coming that come with these things, but it's still not the end, so don't be alarmed. Don't be freaked out or startled. As Jesus explains next, verse 8, Indeed, all these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. This is just the beginning of the end. It's just the precursor, the foretaste, the beginning of God's wrath being poured out on earth. So don't be alarmed in that sense. Don't be sucked in by these end-time alarmists out there that are scouring all the headlines, seeing how, well, this nation's doing that, and that means this, and there's going to be a blood moon there, and that means Jesus is going to come back at this date. No. Don't freak out about these things. Don't listen to that. Don't be taken or alarmed by that. If Russia invades Ukraine, that's not going to spark the beginning of the end. If China attacks, if governments fall to communism or totalitarianism, That's not the beginning of the end. There are demands for vaccine passports to be scanned on every person. That's not the mark of the beast. Don't be alarmed. The end isn't right upon us. At least you couldn't know it just because of that. But what you can know, God is true. And his word is sure. And he's in control. And he's going to see it through to the very end. That you can be sure. Sustain your faith there, not by the headlines. Sustain your faith with what God is doing, not by the changing rumors and headlines of the cable news channels or the trending topic on social media. Stay on his word. Don't be alarmed because his word hasn't moved. Finally, it really culminates with this word, don't give up. What's your perspective for perseverance? You don't give up. You hold fast. And of course, that's a special word for the believers, and there will be believers in that time, this tribulation period. They will have a special trial to persevere through. But we have our own trials to walk through too. And we must persevere to the end to find salvation, he'll talk about. And that's hard because this world's broken and it hurts. And it's very challenging. It's very sad. And every Christian walking by faith, you're going to be hurt in this world. It's just going to happen. And you might get hurt more, actually, because you are a Christian, frankly speaking. And so Jesus reminded us, difficulty in this life is not strange. That's part of the plan, actually. Even when things get hard, understand then, they haven't gotten out of control. That's true for us today. That's true for that final generations of believers. You're going to see the worst right before the end. But again, if it's going to be hard, thankfully we have a good shepherd. He's telling us ahead of time that we might know that we can persevere and there will be a glory at the end. Well, how do we get ready for that glory? How do we know it's worth it to persevere? What's he telling us or what's the perspective we need to have that our faith would endure? First, he's going to give us six exhortations here. First, prepare for persecution. How do you get ready to not give up? First, prepare for persecution because it's coming. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my sake. They will make martyrs of you. They will kill you and hate you because you love Jesus. Because you're associated with his teachings about maybe it's gender and sexuality and marriage. But for people to hate you and to murder Christians, that's nothing new. It'll be terrible during those seven years, but it's nothing new today. 
Our brothers and sisters are suffering all over the world. That's the way it's been through history. I mean, who do we worship? We worship a betrayed and crucified Jesus who rose from the dead. The first martyr in that sense of the church. Then, of course, there was Stephen and James and the rest of the apostles. Then there are disciples like Polycarp and Perpetua. And go on to modern times, Jim Elliott and John Allen Cho recently in Papua New Guinea. And many other countless names that we don't know have been lost in history that died for Christ's sake in his name. Persecution, martyrdom is nothing new. And again, our Christ leads the way and he tells us, follow me, take up your cross, get ready to die. We do it daily, even Luke accounts it, as we put down our own rights, our own agenda. We want to serve God and serve others that we'd be preparing to do it in the ultimate way if it's asked to lay down our life for Christ. We don't know what kind of trouble will come our way, but we are ready to lay it all aside for him. So be ready. And yet what Jesus is describing here in these very last days, there will become a persecution that seems so pervasive that there will be no or few safe lands to flee to. Say like, remember the pilgrims as they came across to the Americas fleeing religious persecution. There won't be anywhere to go. seems like the persecution, hatred will be worldwide against Christians. And with that then, it comes as no surprise that such a trial is going to prove devastating to many's so-called faith. So second, you have to expect betrayal. How can you not give up, get ready for persecution, but expect to be betrayed? So-called Christians, so-called believers in those last days, they will turn on one another. Verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Expect betrayal. As the pressure gets turned up hottest, professing Christians are going to buckle. and They're going to turn on one another. And we see this playing out today, or temptations to it, certainly. And it's horrible. We've seen the communist states like China who then manipulate and torture and extort people, not merely to have them recant the faith, but also that they might get more names of more Christians from them. I mean, what if you get out of jail or your family gets out to safety because you gave them the names of your pastor or your elders or some other members of your church? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the strife that would happen in the community of faith there? So bad will be this persecution and turning on one another. Many will just turn away altogether. It seems to save their necks. They're going to betray others giving them over to the authorities. They're going to choose rather to replay the role of Judas and so give Christ's people over to persecution. But even in light of that, I don't think the word for us is then, we'll trust no one, depend on no one. I think the word is pray for grace to get ready to expect betrayal and how you treat those who betray you. Pray that you wouldn't be embittered against them. You would show them mercy. It is going to be horrible. Expect betrayal in those days, but remember how Jesus treated those who betrayed him. Think of Peter, who denied him three times, and yet he humbly comes asking for mercy, and what does he get from this glorious Christ we serve? He gets mercy. May we emulate that in the same. For that, we need his strength, don't we? Third, to get ready, to not give up. You've got to foresee deception. We've kind of talked about this, but it gets reiterated. Apparently, the lies are just going to abound in this very dark time right before the end. And many false prophets, verse 11, will arise and lead many astray. Spiritual misinformation, fake spiritual news, so to speak, is going to run rampant in those final days. 
But again, even that, even though it's going to be so horrible during those seven years, that's something that the church is called to be vigilant about right now. Let me remind you, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For, so here's the reason why you have to be so discerning. You can't just believe everybody. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. He wrote that 2,000 years ago. That's what the church has been battling with since. To always test everything we hear by the Spirit and by His Word. We've got to be vigilant if we're going to be ready and persevere. Fourth. In these final days in particular, but even the challenges of day, you can anticipate apathy. Verse 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I mean, what a sad expression that is, isn't it? The love of many will grow cold. It's a picture of a smoldering fire. Then you just took a bucket of water and just extinguished it, poured it all out. A smoldering love for God and passion for God is just going to be overwhelmed by lawlessness, wickedness. If you, it seems, especially in those days, trying to hold fast, you're just going to see something of this wave of lawlessness sweeping through society. It's going to all seem hopeless. You felt like that? Why keep witnessing? Nobody wants to hear this. Why keep preaching? Why keep talking? Why keep trying so dangerously to gather with the saints? Why should we ourselves hold fast? We can't stop this tide of lawlessness. It's hopeless. What's the use? You ever had thoughts like that? Well, it's going to get worse. But note this. Even that, even if it's worse sort, that's not beyond the plan of God. It's not like God's suddenly out of control, even in those terrible last days. And that's in part why Jesus is telling us he's forecasting that all ahead of time. So we know to persevere. It's like if you've gone to somebody's house that lives in like a far country road and you're driving like miles on gravel and it's not well marked. I've done that. I'm driving on those roads and I keep going to Aaron. Aaron, is this the right way? You've been there before, right? She's like, yes, yes, I've been there. You just keep driving and driving and driving. We're not driving in someone's backyard or some, you know, construction site. But she's been there. She can assure me, yeah, just keep going, and we arrive. It's going to get bad as people are walking through terrible tribulation. And we need somebody to assure us to say, no, I've seen the end. I know how it's going to work. I'm actually in control of the end. Just trust me. It gets, there's a glory to come at the end, but we've got to get through this. So this is why Jesus tells us ahead of time. We can expect the pain, expect the lawlessness. Expect the temptations toward apathy, but also then expect that none of those evils are the last word. We know that by his word. Fifth, just in summary then, that's how we persevere to the end. Verse 13. This is really the overarching exhortation for us. Persevere to the end. It's worth it. And there it is in verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So what's at the end of this travail? What's at the end if you endure in faith to the end? Salvation, rescue, redemption, forgiveness, heaven, seeing God face to face, this one who so loved you. That's what's at the end. And to be clear, it's not that you earn it by enduring, but the kind of faith that's a genuine endures. That's saving faith. And surely that kind of work of God in the heart will never be more evident, but in those believers enduring the times of affliction, judgment, and persecution. 
But it's evidence now as the church endures those same things, maybe to a lesser degree, but personally, we know this. We see a hope of heaven in their eyes as they look difficulty in the face and say, but there's hope beyond. And it stands with Christ. But you have to endure. And the reason we endure, because we know it's worth it. Salvation's on the other side. Finally then, how do you not give up? What does that look like? You preach the gospel far. Verse 14. Our enduring faith looks like this unshakable hope in the good news. That this gospel that we've been entrusted with, that's our hope, it's not going to be stopped. Verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. See, then the gospel is that one message that all the hate, all the opposition, all the book burning, all the martyring, it's the one message that this world and the devil can never silence. God will be heard. And God has spoken in the gospel. And there he says, I took on flesh. I took on humanity. I came down from heaven here for you to take your sins on myself, on my flesh, that I might live but then die for those sins and so make peace between you and God. That's why I came, Jesus says. He came to take the sins and the wrath upon himself that the full justice of God may be poured out on him instead of you. And that's a message that will one day run across the whole globe that everyone who would want to can hear the message that God came to rescue sinners. That's the only message of hope in the face of this darkness. And we, the church, have been entrusted with this unsinkable hope and message. And the believers of those last days are going to take the baton from us and bear it in the darkest day with the greatest light. And so in response to the afflictions of our age or of the next, in response to the trials, in response to the sufferings, in response to the dark, we send out the only answer, the unsinkable, unshakable hope of Jesus Christ, that there is peace with God. And so we send it far and wide. Because get this, God's wrath is coming. Judgment day is coming. And it's felt now in small ways, through earthquakes, plagues, persecutions, lawlessness, and that's only going to get very worse, as we see in the last seven years, as described here. But either way, whether you live through that last generation or you're alive now, you're going to die and you're going to meet your judge. That awaits everybody. And the answer then and the answer now, the only answer to the ultimate judgment after death is one, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the answer for the judgment of God for our sins. And he is the answer in full. And so what do we do in then? In faith, until that final day, our faith in God's promises looks like endurance. It looks like a perseverance that these sufferings will not have the last word. And that looks like a perseverance to make the only hope known to the world as fast and as far as we can. We send the gospel far and wide. That it's this good news that all the pains and suffering are not the last word. But the last word through the gospel is peace. It's mercy. It's eternal life when Jesus comes back. To trust in him. And trust in him looks like we let him and his glory known to all that would listen. And we're going to do that together even as we celebrate this table. Because that's our only hope. And we celebrate it together until the Lord comes. So let's pray together.
Father, indeed, we give you thanks and we give you glory that we have an unshakable hope. That even as the Lord Jesus comes and you send judgment on the earth, we have hope. That we can look up with hope even in the face of such affliction. Because Jesus died for our sin and he rose from the dead. He's preparing a place for us and he's coming for us. Oh, may this be the cry of our heart. And may that be the assurance of our hope. Because it rests on what we have done, not what we will do, but it rests on what Christ has accomplished. And that you intercede for us, Lord Jesus. May we give glory to you and to what you've done as we remember your cross. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.